<laughs> technology, you know, what to be said about technology, and right now I fucking hate it. Yeah, that's because that's it won't it won't do what I want it to fucking do. That's the curse of our generation. We had so many expectations, and it just keeps. I want us my flying down. car, goddammit. it! Yes, <laughs> my jetpack, and. Welcome to open a fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Cardinals have to keep Yadi Armelani. I'm putting it out there right now. Uh, anyway, we, um, we are on episode three of the Mark Twain series. Yes, and when we last left him, he had what just finished uh, Joan of Arc, and uh, doesn't have any money to pay his debts. Uh, people agreeing to pay, to accept uh, fifty cents on the dollar. So. Between July 1895 and July 1896, Sam circumnavigated the globe, fulfilling a demanding lecture itinerary. Uh, the tour route began in Paris, proceeding westward. The Clemens family stayed together until Susie and Jean chose to remain in Elmira with their Aunt Susan. Sam, Livy, Clara continued, to cr- continued across America to British Columbia, sailing from Vancouver to Australia, which is a long yeah, that would be a long All trip on, on a boat. Uh, New Zealand, India, Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka, uh, Mauritius, an island in the Indian Sea, South Africa, and England. Now, Sam intended to resettle the family in Guilford, England, but news came that Susie was ill in Hartford, facing a long recovery, so Livy and Clara headed home. But they hadn't reached New York when, in mid-August 1896, Sam received a telegram at Guilford saying that Susie had died of spinal meningitis. This was a blow that Sam would never really recover from. Uh, When he eventually returned to Hartford, he was unable to go into the house. The family never lived there again. Um, Where she was when she died, it's got to be hard to go back into that home. I mean, he's... Again, with the guilt issues he has, he probably had a tremendous amount of guilt because he chose to go on that world tour and he didn't leave when his wife and Clara went to try to reach her in time. And even though they didn't, you know, even if he had tried, he would still not have that amount of guilt on him because he didn't even try. I mean, it doesn't seem like it, but again, we can't exactly know what, what was going on, the timing of everything. Um, but you'd have to assume that uh, the guilt from not being there probably ate away at him. Because he probably figured, oh, she got sick. She's been sick before. She'll get better. I need to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, nobody expects to one day, you know, your kid gets sick. You, you usually think, ah, it's just it's something they'll get past. And then they die, and you can't go back and change anything. But you also can't jump to the, oh, my God, they're going to die conclusion yeah, every time but you they have, get sick. You have priorities in life, and... To me, my kids would be top priority no matter what I'm doing. Obviously, I don't care um, about my debtors. I don't care what I owe to people. Obviously, we don't care about our debtors. <laughs> but, no, if my child's sick, I'm going to drop what I'm doing if I'm on a, a lecture tour and I'm yeah. going to go try to be with my child. Right. Because she had been sick for a while. She was still recovering. and Yeah, you know. she faced sickness for most of her life. Um, it had been a... Difficult book to write, more particularly patched together from his notebook. And now that it was finished, he wasn't sure what to call it. In progress, he called it Round the World. Now, however, he thought of naming the work Imitating the Equator. 
Another Innocence Abroad, The la- Latest Innocence Abroad, or The Surviving Innocence Abroad. But the title he chose, July 1897, was Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World. And the title, chosen by the English publisher, still different from that, More Tramps Abroad. Mm, that sounds dumb. Well, he wrote Tramp Abroad right. before, and now this is More Tramps Abroad. You have, to, you have the American English and European English. It's different. Uh, both bore the dedication to Harry Rogers, the son of his intimate friend, Henry Heddleson Rogers. As he written here, this book is affectionately inscribed to my young friend, Harry Rogers, with recognition of what he is and apprehension of what he may become unless, for, unless he form himself a little more closely upon the model, model of author. Not present, however, on a page by itself in either edition is this touching explanatory note. Of the 70 innocents who sailed in the Quaker City ex- excursion 28 years ago, I am the only innocent one still living. I called the record of the trip The Innocents Abroad, and the title plausibly suggests that all the excursionists were without guile. But that was courte- but that was a courteous exaggeration. Strictly, the, de- the title described only two of us. The other one is no more. What's weird to me is that he dedicated this to his friend's son and not his dead daughter. Yeah, that that is a little strange. That's the first person I'm thinking. I mean, maybe it was dedicated before his, like he had it he pre-dedicated. He, I mean, but you can you can dedicate a book to he he dedicated Prince and Pauper to two of his daughters. There's no reason he can't dedicate this to uh, his daughter and his friend's son. True. After finishing the book, Sam moved the Clemens family to Switzerland in July 1987. The success of the Round the World tour and the book meant that by early 1898, Sam was able to repay his debts in full, a feat that won him considerable public admiration. So all that money that he had lost, everybody he owed money to, with just the, the lecture tour and the book, he was able to pay everybody off completely. So he's down to having no debts. That's good. Yeah. After two years in Europe, writing, lecturing, meeting with such notables as Sigmund Freud and Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria-Hungary, Sam took his family to London in July of 1900. Living at Doris Hill for three months, busy writing, and ever popular, Sam socialized with the cultural elite, and accepted numerous invitations to speak at banquets and public meetings. October of 1900, the Clemens family finally returned to America, moving to a house in Riverdale, just outside New York City. In 1901, Sam lectured extensively, taking an active role in New York's social scene. He was presented with an honorary doctor of letters from Yale University in 1901. So he's a letter doctor. I think I saw that on PBS once. With the letter people. A letter doctor. You're such a dork. That same year, he became vice president of the Anti-Imperialist League, a position he would hold for the next nine years. Uh, He published To the Person Sitting in Darkness, uh, this essay attacking America's policy in the Philippines uh, because they wanted to pretty much keep the Philippines for their own and 
the anti-imperialists were saying, no, we, we freed them so they could be free, not so they could be a part of America. Right. Uh, in the in the context of European imperialism, was originally published in North in North American Review, February 1901. Mark Twain never included it in any collections collection published during his lifetime, but it was reprinted as a pamphlet and widely widely distri- distributed by the Anti Imperialist League of New York. He also wrote the United States of Lyncherdom. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 1901, in a reaction to a newspaper account of the Missouri lynching, he even thought of using it as an introduction to a subscription book, uh, a history of lynching in America. He decided, however, not to publish it at all and told his publisher that if he went ahead with the book on lynching, quote, I shouldn't have even half a friend left down there in the South after it issued from the press. The essay was published 13 years after his death by Albert B. Albert B. Payne in Europe and elsewhere. Again, Albert B. Payne. He will show up more and more. But this this was a book or essay about anti-lynching. So it wasn't he was writing it about lynching. He was writing it against lynching. He he he'll take on a little bit more of a. Uh, uh, liberal activist role you'll see he starts speaking out uh, about some more shit um that i that most of us would say need to be spoken out of uh, against so it seems like you know he grew up to be this southern boy but now he's breaking out into more of a democratic role much like huck finn uh huck finn going into the book he had one belief on slavery at the end of the book, he has a completely different belief on slavery. Mark Twain's whole life is pretty much like that. He had a certain set of beliefs when he was younger and completely evolved to where he was older. Now, in the April of 1902, Livy arranged the purchase of a house in Terrytown, New York, overlooking a beautiful stretch of river in the Tappan Zee. I'm guessing that's a, a you know. Posh area. Yeah. Uh, the Clemenses, attract, uh, attracted by the Hudson environment, planned to make this their first permanent home in many years. Unfortunately, Livy's declining health would prevent them from occupying the house. University of Columbia, Missouri, right over the river from where we are, uh, also in April of 1902, presented Sam with an honorary doctor of laws, for which he traveled back to the Midwest, staying from May 29th to June 3rd. Uh, Arriving in St. Louis, he was met at the train by his old river pilot instructor and friend, Horace Bixby. So after all this time, comes back around. Bixby took him to the Pilots Association where rivermen, soon hearing of Sam's return, gathered to celebrate. That same afternoon, he took the train on an unplanned visit to Hannibal. A hotel clerk recognizing recognizing him at once gushed, I visited the house you were born in many times. And Sam quipped back, I wasn't born many times, just once. (laughs) Yeah. Such a witty man. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, at the University of Columbia, Missouri, Sam accepted his degree amid great praise and, letter, and later rechristened the St. Louis Harbor boat, the Mark Twain, taking a turn piloting the wheel one last time. So it all comes full circle. He gets to go back to his hometown, go back to St. Louis, uh, and then drive a boat up and down the river, 
one last time. It'll be the last time he gets to. Yeah, he becomes this fancy Eastern man, really posh and, you know, full of dreams because he asked his wife to create him this new lifestyle. Yeah. Because he was born in the Midwest and he was somewhat of a Midwestern Southern type of guy. And then now all of a sudden after he's so posh and he's made so much money, he goes back to the Midwest and now he's these this famous guy to mm -hmm. all his friends and family and everybody he's ever met over there. So he's a celebrity now. And I'm not 100% sure, but I, I believe the Mark Twain was still around when we were kids. I think I saw it. Like just puttered around. I think they turned it into one of those gambling riverboats before it was outlawed or some shit. <laughs> Uh, which I would, see that. Which happen. would be fitting. Yeah. Be like, what's, which investment do you want to lose money on? That's how he gambled. He, he picked bad investments. Yes. Uh, shortly afterwards, the family took a summer cottage in York Harbor, Maine. During this period, the Hartford house was sold, and the family looked forward to making a new permanent home at the Terrytown house. But in August, Livy became seriously ill, and on medical advice, spent long periods of isolation in York Harbor and Riverdale before being advised to seek the warmer climate of Florence, Italy hmm. in 1903. Wouldn't that be great if you go to your doctor and be like, I think the cure is Italy. That, I mean, my body responds well to warmer temperatures, <laughs> so maybe we can go over to there's, like Greece and there's Italy. There's two things you want to hear your doctor say when you get sick. You need your, The prescription is Italy and more cowbell. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say that too. <laughs> On August 24th, Sam and Livy sailed for Florence with daughters Clara and Jean, uh, Katie Leary, one of their domestic servants for over 23 years, and a trained nurse. Livy died in Florence on June 5th, 1904. The family returned with her remains to Elmira. Twain spent a lot of time away from his wife, mostly while touring, but he no doubt loved her, writing, wheresoever she was, there was Eden. Aww. Yeah, I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta wonder. Like, you spend that much time away from your family. You you ask like, well, do you really care about him? I think he did. I just I think he was doing. Uh, one, he was the type of person. It seemed like he was the type of person that was. This is what I love doing. This is what I'm gonna do. Well, that and he was hardworking, and I believe he wanted to help was, yeah, give was, her the lifestyle she was used to. And it was well, and the lifestyle he wanted. Yes. And the lifestyle he had always stro strove to give his his mother, and I think it's the best way he knew of how to make money. Honestly, I mean, when we get to his, he made quite a bit of money from his inventions too, uh, which we will get to. It was the easiest you know, and quickest way to make money. It was the. It was. He wasn't a riverboat pilot anymore which is what he really loved to do yeah because um, there weren't very many rivers to have steamboats on over in the east well, you, coast well back then you can go up and down the missouri uh the mississippi and the missouri and probably the illinois and make a lot of money doing it and he was good at it but through the whole civil war era civilian ships weren't going up and down the mississippi it and homeboy had was, other yeah, dreams yeah it was homeboy had other dreams the title of the episode homeboy had other dreams uh, <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> uh, so I just, you find something that you love and you're able to make money doing it. The next thing is you have to ask yourself, what sacrifices are you willing to make? And it seemed like sacrifice he was willing to make was a, large amount, of time, a large amount of time away from his wife and kids. Yeah. 
And that's why I said he had his priorities wrong. But again, that goes into his psychological profile, which I would love to delve deeper into because, I mean, we know he had crippling grief. We know he had some form of anxiety, whether it was just from the deaths of family one right after the other. He had a lot of aggressiveness and kind of that that air of confidence. But deep down, uh, you, you kind of knew that he was very... Um, unsure of himself yes and i and I, pushing himself I, I think really helped with that i think he's like i gotta keep doing this or else i'm not gonna be good enough right if he if he stopped then he probably would have been the type of person to take his own life if he it's a possibility yeah if he he had to keep moving to keep that anxiety down also he was probably somebody who there had to be a distraction from all the horrible things going all the way back to uh benjamin and uh, Margaret and their loss, uh, what he lost them, and then Henry, uh, his father. Uh, it seems like maybe he's the type. Of, he was the type of person that had to have that distraction of work, 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 work. Otherwise, or imagination, imagination, imagination. Otherwise, everything would just kind of punch him. And it kind of it, it later on um, near the very end of his life, it 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 does take its toll. Uh, now the Terrytown House could never be home for him and Livy because Livy had passed on. So Sam sold it before the end of 1904. Uh, he lived in New York in a brownstone at 21 Fifth Avenue, writing and making public, public appearances. By this time, he was a national hero, and he used his recognition to speak out against injustice and intolerance. He finally, he's putting his voice out um, he's to help people. He's using those doctorate law degrees that he got. So much that some suggestions were made to his presidential worthiness, which he easily uh, dampened. And he was uh, far too wise in the way of politics, he said. Um, In 1905, biographer Albert Bigelow Payne joined the family household. Bigelow? Bigelow, his (laughs) name. He's he's Bigelow, uh, American. He's not a gigolo. Uh, So for the for the, the last five years of his life, uh, Payne will be there with him pretty constantly and pretty much writing everything down, getting all of the stories so he could put out the biography. Um, in November 1905, he dined at the White House with old Teddy Roosevelt. Ooh. 1906, he testified before Congress on copyright legislation, wearing his famous white suit, beginning his trademark of wearing it year-round. Uh, now, as well as being an author... Mark Twain was also a liberal humanitarian supporting various causes such as abolition and women's rights. Yes, even though he sided with the Confederates, like we said, much like uh, Huck Finn, he had changed his views on slavery. When he was approached by an actress friend, Minnie Minnie Madame Fisk, uh, he was asked to write a story which which would support her anti-bullfighting campaign and highlight the cruelty of the practice. He agreed, and a horse's tail was the result. This is probably another one you never heard of. No, it's, I have not. It's a novella. It's really short. You can actually get it online. I don't have the link with me right now. But um, they have the whole thing, and it's it's like 15 chapters, and the chapters are like, I don't know, takes you like three minutes to read each chapter. It's pretty short. And also, if you're an animal lover, it's kind of hard to get. Uh, it's published in 1907, short uh, novella told partly from the viewpoint of the horse 
and partly from the viewpoint of other characters via the letters they wrote. It's set mainly in an army fort in the Rocky Mountain area of, the, of America in the mid-19th century, although it moves brief, briefly to Spain near the end of the story. Now, Soldier Boy, who is a handsome black horse, somewhat famous among the other horses, as he is the steed of legendary Buffalo Bill William Cody, who is, at the time of the story, uh, working as a scout for the American Army. When Kathy, the half-Spanish nine-year-old orphan niece of the fort's general, is sent to stay with them. She soon becomes a favorite of all the soldiers, and for her, hap for her happy and loving ways, she is befriended by Buffalo Bill, who teaches her to ride on Soldier Boy. Soon, boy and the, the, the girl and the horse are inseparable. They love each other, so she is given the horse to own. Uh, but when the general must leave for Spain, takes his niece with him. Kathy has to say goodbye to the horse, and while on their travels, Soldier Boy is stolen. Aww. Kathy is distraught. Soldier Boy goes through a succession of bad homes. Then in Spain, home of bullfighting, the pair are suddenly reunited. Uh, it make, give, give, put your little twinge in your heart that they were reunited. That doesn't mean it's a happy ending. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see where this is going. Uh, we'll supply the link on the the webpage. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go on and I'll I'll find it and we'll we'll throw it up there and, and you guys can go read it. And if you're an animal, if if you don't care about animals, you just want a good story, you'll love it. If you care about animals, um, I mean, just read it anyway. Uh, it was met with mixed reviews, mostly because of its graphic nature where most people didn't seem much to care about animal cruelty in those days. Animals were seen more of a tool than a companion. Uh, you know, go out, horse breaks a leg, go out, shoot it in the head, you know, that type of thing. Um, but the ones that did care about animals, about, you know, just about animals in general, couldn't seem to get through the abuses that are strewn through the book. And uh, like I said, if you're an animal lover, it is hard to get through. It's like in a horror movie. I couldn't give a shit less who dies. Just don't kill the fucking dog. They, when I watch a horror, there are two things. I don't want to see an animal die. I don't want to see an infant die. That's... Yeah, like Pet cemetery is the worst fucking thing. Because animals are already dead. And then the kid dies. The, 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 the baby, toddler dies. Yeah. I, I just I can't. I have spoiler I alert again. <laughs> we're horrible. We're gonna, we're gonna spoiler alert all the movies you should have seen fifteen years ago. <laughs> Even so, the remakes that are out now. <laughs> Who fucking cares? Uh, no, what was that? No, that fear with uh, Mark Wahlberg and um, uh, oh, what's her face? Uh, Reese Reese Witherspoon, where he's in love with her and she's terrorizing her family, and he chops the fucking German head. German Shepherd's uh, head off and then pushes it through the doggy door and they're all thinking oh the dog's coming in and then he drops it on the floor it's just a head on the floor I almost turned off the movie right then they almost lost me right there oh my god because like Cujo I've watched Cujo like a few times but that movie freaks me out even then I don't want the dog to die I know and he's got but... rabies. You know he's going to die even if they don't kill him. Eventually, he's just going to die. It's what happens when an animal gets rabies. That doesn't mean I want it to happen. I know. Like, give him some wanna... medicine or I something. Don't... Well, you can't give medicine. Rabies is terminal. You get rabies, you die. 
Well, not humans. You can get uh, you can get shots, but if an animal gets rabies, they're pretty much dead. Plus, they're out in the middle of you know, bumfuck Egypt. Uh, I mean, I didn't want the little kid or the woman to die. Obviously, I didn't want the woman to die. <sighs> anyway, on June twenty sixth, nineteen oh seven, he was awarded an honorary doctor of literature degree by Oxford University. Ooh. Several fancy. months earlier, C.F. Moberly Bell, the editor of the London Times, had asked him when he would return to England. Sam had previously said that he would never travel abroad again and reportedly answered, when Oxford bestows its degree upon me. The cable from Oxford arrived in May, so Sam sailed once more for England. Uh, the penguin, the, the penguins, the people of England had came out in droves to see him. I mean, they were ex- this was a huge celebrity. This is fucking Beyonce coming to town. They were crazy. Uh, the accolades were unending and he was overwhelmed with the invitation with invitations to a variety of functions over an extended 26-day stay, including a royal banquet with King Edward VII and the Queen and an unprecedented dinner with the staff of Punch Magazine. He went from royalty to poverty-stricken regions. He, he was at this point where he didn't care where he went. He didn't care who he socialized with. He just wanted to go out there and see the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but it, it, it didn't initially start that way. He, he had hoped to seclude himself away from all the fuss, but realized it, would, it probably wouldn't be possible to deny the outpouring of praise and affection that sought sought him out so keenly so much mail arrived at his hotel letters gifts invitations that it was jokingly compared to a post office i mean it was it was full <laughs> it was like i mean remember that remember in uh, bruce almighty where he's he uh he's getting all the emails yes it's, yeah i imagine that if he had email it would have been like that they just would have been everywhere uh, together with the secretary, keeping track of his engagements, he paid numerous visits to the homes of the poor and the rich alike, showing no partiality. So he didn't he didn't care how much money you had, who you were. If everybody knew who you were, or nobody knew who you were. Um, he you know he went around and he, and he met with people. He I think w- at that point in his life, he he probably didn't care anymore. He probably didn't even care if he had money anymore either, because he lost his wife and he didn't have to be that refined gentleman anymore. Yeah. At this age, all he's really got left are Jean and Clara. And, um, they both kind of have genes. He cared about Jean's uh, physical and mental standpoint because she was still sick going in and out of uh, hospitals. Um, Clara, I said that I could do a full episode on just his family. I could probably do a full episode just on Clara. She was something else. Wanting a music career, uh, go over to a lot of times when they spent in Europe, they did it so she could pursue the things she wanted to pursue. She ends up marrying this um, rich Russian guy. Uh, I mean, she, so he didn't really need to worry about her. Gene was sick, so he, he worried about her a lot, but he didn't need the millions of dollars that he had he didn't have to worry about taking care of Livy because she was gone so he just had the two girls and himself he didn't want anything to do with anybody really he wanted to go over there get his doctorate be oh thank you and and just kind of hide away for the whole time he was there but uh he knew that wasn't possible so he just said fuck it and he went out and he met with everybody he could meet with it was the culmination of his career to receive honors from oxford but a more touching reward was the sincere affection and love so freely bestowed upon him by the countless people. Quote, praise is well, compliment is well, 
but affection, that is the last and final and most precious reward that any man can win. Whether by character or achievement, I am very grateful to have that award. So that's what he cared. He, he could, you know, you could say, oh, Mark, uh, Samuel, clap your hands together. and be like, But the real affection, the real outpouring of love, that's what meant something to him. It, it meant to him that he had actually connected with people. And that apparently meant a lot to him. Uh, when he sailed for home on July 13th, multitudes lined the dock to shout and wave a final goodbye. Quote, it has been the most enjoyable holiday I have ever had and I am sorry the end has come. I have met a hundred old friends and have made a hundred new ones. It's the kind of riches to have. There is none better, I think. The London Tribune reported, he has made the world laugh again. Because there's a lot of shit going on in the early 1900s. Oh, yeah. So he came to England and kind of took everybody's mind off all the bullshit that people were having to deal with. So... He arrived back in New York ahead of schedule, inviting his biographer, Albert B. Payne, old Bigelow, to come and play billiards. Now we get to the time of many projects being started and not being finished. He just didn't, he didn't really have it in him to finish. Uh, the Mysterious Stranger, a novel attempted by Twain. He worked on intermittently through 1897 all the way through 1908. And Twain wrote multiple versions of the story. Each involves a supernatural character called Satan or number 44, which is funny because we usually call Satan number 45. Uh, all, <laughs> <laughs> all the versions remained unfinished with the debatable exception of the last one, number 44, The Mysterious Stranger. Three stories. The three stories differ in length. The Chronicles of Young, Young Satan has about 55,000 words. Schoolhouse Hill has uh, about 15,300. And number 44, The Mysterious Stranger, about 65,000. So they, they, they vary by quite a bit. Various web sources, like Wikipedia, will tell you right off the bat that The Mysterious Stranger is Mark Twain's final attempted novel near the end of his life. It's true, but it's an ambiguous and, and, and inaccurate statement uh, for various reasons. The Mysterious Stranger is less the definitive title of a concrete work written by Twain than it is a collective reference to a few. Uh, Twain is not the only author involved. The first version of Twain's work that made its way to the public eye was The Mysterious Stranger, a romance, a stripped-down and beefed-up version Edited and revised posthumously by Twain's literary executor, Albert B. Payne. Payne published his version of Twain's work in 1916, and the time, one might imagine to be the result of tampering with the dead man's work and controversy ensued. So people weren't real big on the fact that some guy, I mean, he was they were close, and he knew Twain fairly well, but he kind of finished Twain's writings for him at, at didn't really go over all that well. Yeah, I don't think anyone should finish anyone's writing or something. I, I I hate when they do that with songwriters' songs and famous singers. Like if Prince and my, when Michael Jackson had some unfinished songs that he had written and people finished them and tried recording them. Yeah, I mean if they have something already done and they just haven't published it yet, like Tupac, uh, Jack, Michael Jackson, um, Kurt Cobain. 
uh, a, a few others, they had music that had been recorded. They just hadn't decided to put it out yet. You kind of leave that to the executors of their estate to decide what was best for them. And that's uh, um, Albert Payne was the executor to his literary estate. Estate. Thank you. I just said the fucking word and I can't remember it. God damn it, I'm getting old. Uh, So it was kind of up to him what to do with it. Um, Later on, you'll see that Clara takes hold of a lot of his stuff um, after his death. But it's kind of up to him. You know, if he wanted to release it, he could. I just don't think he should have finished it. What, and, and later stuff stuff will come out that is unfinished, which is probably how it probably just shouldn't have been released, period. I don't think it should have gone to Bigelow in the first place. I think it should have gone to Clara. <laughs> it should have gone to Clara because she is the oldest living relative, and that's usually who it goes to unless it's in a will. No, he was the literary executor, so technically it, I mean, it was up to him what to do. Uh, Twain wrote the St. Peter's St. Petersburg Fragment in September 1897. It was set in the fictional town of St. Petersburg, which is pretty much just Hannibal. Um, Twain then revised this version, removing references to St. Petersburg, and used the text for The Chronicles of Young Satan. It is also referred to as the Eseldorf version uh, and relates to the adventures of Satan, the sinless nephew of the biblical Satan in Eseldorf, in uh, an, Austrian vi- an Austrian village in 1702. Twain wrote this version between, 19- between 1897 and 1900. Eseldorf is German for Assville or Donkey Town. Donkey Town. <laughs> As- I can deal with Donkey Town. Call it a place Assville. Germans have the weirdest it's, shit anyway. Like, like everything's it's weird. It's titsden. Titsden. <laughs> it's like titsden. Ass and tits. Tits and ass. <laughs> ass. Oh, you're going down. You, know, you just take uh, Highway 97 down there, TNA, and you take a left. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the second substantial text Twain attempted to write is known as Schoolhouse Hill, or the Hannibal version. It is set in the U.S. and involves the familiar, the familiar characters, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, with their adventures with Satan. Uh, referred to in this version as number 44, new series 864962. Twain began writing in it writing it in November 1898 and, like the St. Petersburg fragment, set in the fictional town St. Petersburg. Third text, called number 44, The Mysterious Stranger, being an ancient tale found in Jug and freely translated from the Jug. Yes, that is the full fucking name. Uh also known as the print shop version, returns to Austria, this time the year 1490, not long after the invention of printing. Printing was like 1440, so about 50 years after that. Uh, It tells of number 44's mysterious uh, appearance at the door of a print shop and his his use of heavenly powers to expose the futility of mankind's existence. This version also introduces an idea Twain was toying with at the end of his life involving duality of self, composed of the walking self and the dream self. Twain explores these ideas through the use of duplicate copies of the print shop worker made by number 44. This version contains an actual ending. However, the text still has many flaws and is debatable whether it can be considered finished. Twain wrote this version between 1902 and 1908. When he was really kind of in the, he was really getting to the, I mean, not 1902 so much, but by 1908, he was feeling it. 
he was really starting to Sounds like he was getting it. into sociology a bit with the id, ego, and superego. Mm-hmm. Well, they, he had, uh, Freud was kind of a thing then. Yeah. So I think that kind of came into it. It was not until 1969 that Twain's original writing was made available for public viewing. So just just what he wrote, the way he wrote it. Which honestly, if you put it up in the, like the Hartford House, which is now a national museum, uh, national landmark, put that up there in glass so people can 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 look through it and see what he was working on at the end of his life. That that I think is fine. Um, but as far as publishing it, I don't know if he would have really wanted that. Um, this was when William M. Gibson, a, a scholar, unsatisfied that all there was for literary literary world to criticize was a work not entirely written by Twain, published the Mysterious Stranger Manuscripts, a collection of three original versions of the Mysterious Stranger, number 44, the Mysterious Stranger, What is Man, and the Chronicles of Young Satan, written by Twain, Twain himself, two of which unfinished. So much like you, there's a person out there going, this is fucking bullshit. I shouldn't read stuff that was written only partially by him. I want just his writings. I want it pure, unadulterated Mark Twain. In a literary sense, it also sounds like maybe he was fooling around with his subconscious and that's what he was writing about. Who knows? Now, through his life, Twain was introduced to some of history's most interesting people from this time. Two of the most famous Americans in the 19th century were Mark Twain and Ulysses S. Grant. They formed a surprising friendship. Now, on paper, the outgoing, personable author and the quiet reserve general turned president couldn't be more different. But their close bond led to the publication of a landmark work of autobiography with both men racing against the clock as Grant neared death. We already... Uh, hinted towards Ulysses S. Grant's uh, memoirs, his bio- his autobiography that uh, Twain would publish with his publishing house. So let's get into that story because it's 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 pretty. I mean, Twain really does save him and Grant's wife from absolute ruin. Yeah, and about them being completely opposite and being friends, you know, opposites attract. I mean, look at you and look at me. And I mean, you can look at a lot of people say, these two were, I mean, about as different as you can get. And Mark Twain's never one to shy away from being right there in front of everything. Grant didn't want anything to do with being in the limelight. Uh, he accepted the presidential nomination pretty much under duress. He went for a second presidential nom- nomination pretty much under duress. Everybody else wanted him to do it. He didn't really want to do it. Um, he was an alcoholic for the majority of his life. Um, he he battled with a bunch of different things. So they really are two completely different people. Like many other Americans, Twain had long admired Grant. They were both from the Midwest, Grant from Ohio, Twain from Missouri, and both had endured difficult early careers. Grant's, Grant once named a soon-to-fail farm Hardscrabble. Yeah. Uh, Grant's success. Like <laughs> Grant's early uh, Grant's success as a general during the American Civil War had captured the North's attention, and Twain repaired, reportedly carried a copy of Grant's infamous letter to Confederate General Simon Buckner during the, ba- the Battle of Fort Donelson, 
and his wallet as a keepsake. But their first meeting hardly foreshadowed the friendship that was to follow. In 1867, Twain, still an unknown journalist, traveled to Washington, D.C. to act as a private secretary to a Nevada senator after his Mediterranean tour. In December of that year, he briefly met Grant, uh, then still in the U.S. Army at a party. Um, After leaving his position, Twain returned to D.C. to lobby for the passage of a bill in 1870. His first book had recently been published, uh, but he was not yet a household name. And when his former boss brought him to the White House to meet the now President Grant, Twain recognized the power and balance between the two, later writing to his wife about the encounter, I shook hands, and then there was a pause and silence. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I merely looked into the general's grim, immovable countenance and for a moment or two in silence, and then said, Mr. President, I am embarrassed. Are you? (laughs) Following that inauspicious White House meeting, their paths didn't cross again for almost a decade. November 1879, Twain was invited to a dinner in Grant's honor in Chicago. After the meal, a series of speakers rained endless praise on Grant well into the night. Twain, the evening's final speaker, didn't take the floor until well after midnight. Rather than follow suit with a toast to Grant's talents, Twain proceeded to poke fun at the esteemed guest of honor, pretty much roasting him. Uh, didn't really become a thing until you know the whole you know Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, the the Friars Club roasts. Um, so Mark Twain kind of invented roasting. Kind of, kind of. I mean, I'm sure people had done it before, but uh, to a president, uh, fearful that he had offended Grant, Twain waited for a reaction. A group of men seemed shocked, but. Not Grant. He was the first to laugh, and when he was reintroduced to Twain at the end of the night, Grant clearly recalled their first meeting, responding, Mr. Clemens, I am not embarrassed. Are you? (laughs) The two quickly became close friends. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, after Grant left office, he and his wife took a European tour, which left them financially tapped. Uh, After a series of bad investments and dealing with a crooked businessman and a failed run for another Republican nomination for presidency, Grant was on the edge of poverty. Twain was by now a regular visitor to Grant's New York home and saw his friend's distress firsthand. Several years earlier, he had suggested that Grant write his memoirs, but Grant had declined, convinced he was no writer. He was a he was an army man, and he was a politician. And he wasn't really even a politician. He was an army man who they kind of forced, into, forced into yeah. Twain wasn't the only one who wanted Grant to write his autobiography. The editors of Century Magazine asked Grant to write a series of articles on the Civil War battles that had brought him fame. With no other source of income on the horizon, he reluctantly agreed. Working out of the New Jersey home, he and his wife Julia were temporarily forced to move move to due to lack of funds. Uh, His first articles were unexciting, but he quickly improved, discovering a literary talent that few would have expected. The editors asked Grant to expand the articles into a memoir. He remained reluctant. 
But another blow forced Grant to reconsider. Just months after the collapse of his son's company that he had invested in, Grant's health worsened. After ignoring lingering throat pain for months, he was finally diagnosed with cancer, likely caused by his decades-long constant cigar smoking. Uh, I don't want to hear anything about typical man not wanting to go to the doctor. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, he's a stubborn man. That He was set in his ways. But he was an army man. I'm tough. Okay, I can handle let's it. Let's face it. Doctors back then, they, they showed up. They said, here, put cocaine on it and some leeches. I'm going to go get drunk. And that was about it. That's what doctors did back then. If they if they couldn't put a piece of leather in your mouth, tell you to bite down and They'd saw it off. They'd also give you a shit ton of morphine so you didn't have to feel anything. So. Which, and in Samuel's case, killed his brother. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well. So, um, okay, we're on. Yeah, the diagnosis was a death sentence, obviously, and a despondent Grant was now left to worry about the future financial prospects of his beloved wife. Uh, Grant told the Century editors that he would write the book after all. They offered him a standard 10% royalty on expected sales, and the contract was prepared. Um, I've never had to deal with royalty things. 10% does seem low to me but apparently it was standard i'm not the only one who thought it was low because when dwayne when twain learned of the deal he was appalled by the low sum they had offered grant twain and grant may have had very different personalities but they both has had experience as bad businessmen but twain now saw an opportunity to help his friend and himself this was probably the only time twain made a very good idea business-wise he offered Grant a remarkably generous contract, including 70% of any possible royalty, an upfront advance, and living expenses. The ever-loyal Grant was initially reluctant to go back on his deal with Century and worried about the effects it would have on his friendship with Twain if the book was a failure, but he finally agreed to Twain's terms. Now, despite constant pain that often left him unable to eat, drink, sleep, Grant spent hours each day working on the book, wrapped in layers of clothing to keep his rapidly shrinking frame warm. He churned out page after page, all while newspaper headlines blared the latest updates about his impending death. Uh, when Grant, fi- Grant raced to finish the book, Twain set about promoting it. Now, this, this is ingenious as far as what I, uh, what I think. It, I mean, it does. It sounds what, like no, it. What, what he will do to promote this book is ingenious. Oh, I mean, it's, um, president's dying. He's writing his memoirs. Well, which is pretty standard for a president to write his memoirs now. Uh, most presidents do it. They all get their own. You know, it, it's just something that you hear about them writing their memoirs. I don't know how many presidents before him or after him had done it, but I know now. Um, I can't wait to get the current president's memoirs. I'm uh, not gonna fucking read that bullshit. Uh, but it's gonna be written in crayon. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, promotion for this this book is pretty outstanding. Uh, it would be sold as a subscription of two volumes, capitalizing on Grant's continued popularity in the North. He recruited a ten thousand person strong sales team compromised primarily of former Union soldiers, many of them dressed in their old uniforms. Oh. The agents traveled from door to door using a 37-page sales pitch Twain had wrote himself. 
that seems a bit excessive. But well, it, it, early sale predictions were pr- promising, providing Grant with the mental fortitude to continue. Tucked away in a home in the more welcoming climate of the Anirondack Mountains, he was eventually forced to dictate some of his memoir to an assistant uh, as he was unable to write. Twain was a frequent visitor counseling his friend and revising the manuscript with Grant, sometimes passing notes back and forth when Grant was eventually unable to speak. Grant finally finished the 336,000 word manuscript in mid-July 1885 and died a week later. 63 years old. More than a, more than 1.5 million people attended his funeral in New York City. That yeah. is crazy. Yeah, that's that's I mean, that's the numbers that Lincoln was getting when he was going cross-country. I mean, the first volume of the memoirs was published later that year, and it was an overnight sensation. Still considered one of the finest military autobiographies ever written, it exceeded all expectations. Thanks to Twain's ingenious idea to include what appeared to be a handwritten note from Grant in each book, the first run of 350,000 copies quickly sold out. Julia would eventually earn some four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Take a how mu- Take an idea. Uh, take a guess at how much that is worth now. That this this all goes back to that the thirty-seven page uh, sales sales pitch, pitch that Twain had written. Four hundred fifty thousand dollars back in the early nineteen hundred. Five hundred million. Well, come on. Okay, two. Eleven million dollars. Oh, eleven. Million. Eleven million four hundred fifty thousand dollars then is more than eleven million dollars today. Grant had feared he would leave his, leave his wife penniless. Instead, Twain's deal made her one of America's richest women. I got all that from Biography.com from uh, Barbara Marizani. Then there was Helen Keller. Ooh. Wha- uh, another one we will cover. I've 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 peeked into a little bit of her past and it I mean just the fact that she was deaf blind and mute and she was able to do as much as she was able to do anyway is still is enough to write about but she had a I mean she went far and beyond that for over a decade Mark Twain the deaf and blind writer and the the deaf and blind writer and activist Helen Keller formed a mutual appreciation society that neither distance nor disability could dampen to Twain Keller was the eighth wonder of the world, who was fellow to Caesar, Alexander, Napoleon, Homer, Shakespeare, and the rest of the immortals. For Keller, the father of American literature was both a mentor and friend. Now, I had pitched to Stephanie of me doing Helen Keller's voice the way I would do a deaf, blind, and mute person's voice. I was declined. <laughs> so I said, fine. If you think you can do it, then you do it. That's No, I, I had pitched doing a very offensive voice. She told me no. So I asked her if she would please do it so I didn't have to do a regular woman's voice. So she accepted. Mark Twain has his own way of thinking, saying and doing everything. I can feel the twinkle of his eye in his handshake. Even while he utters his cynical wisdom... In an indescribably droll voice, he makes you feel that his heart is a tender iliad of human sympathy. These most unlikely of friends met in 1895 when Keller was only 14 at a party held in her honor by the editor Lawrence Hutton in New York City. 
Without touching anything, without seeing anything, obviously, and without hearing anything, she seemed to quite well recognize the character of her surroundings. Oh, the books. The books. So many, many books. How lovely. Uh, that Twain recalled that in his autobiography. Uh, already one of the most famous men in America, Twain put the young teenage girl at ease. He was particularly tender and lovely with her, even for Mr. Clemens, his friend Henry Rogers recalled. The instant I clasped his hand in mine, I knew that he was my friend. Twain's hand is full of whimsies and the drollest humors, and while you hold it, the drollery changes to sympathy and championship. Now that afternoon, Twain and the teenage girl discovered a shared love of learning and laughter. I told her a, a long story, which she interrupted all along in the right places with cackles, chuckles, carefree bursts of laughter. laughter. For Keller, Twain's easy, carefree attitude toward her was a breath of fresh, fresh air. He treated me not as a freak, but as a handicapped woman seeking a way to circumvent extraordinary difficulties. The young girl's innocence deeply moved the cynical and sophisticated Twain. When I first knew Helen, she was 14 years old. Up all that time, all soiling and sorrowful and unpleasant things had been carefully kept from her. The word death was not in her vocabulary, nor the word grave. She was indeed the whitest soul on earth. Now, when I had told Stephanie before about how they were friends, it was kind of, I told her, like, well, he used to tell her stories and they used to talk, but I don't know how she heard him. She was blind, she was deaf, and she was mute. So I looked into it, and apparently she would uh, put her thumb on somebody's larynx and then her fingers on their mouth. And she could feel the, the vibrations of their throat and the movement of their mouth and read the lips. And by the way everything was coming out of them, the, the way the air was coming out of the, their mouth and the way um, their voice box was vibrating, she could tell the difference between when somebody was being serious or sarcastic she could tell exactly what they were trying to say she really was a marvel at being blind deaf and mute it, it's kind of crazy but simply amazing now after their initial meeting the two kept in touch uh one twain who had recently gone bankrupt discovered that the discovered that financial difficulties were preventing keller from attending radcliffe college he immediately wrote to emily rogers the wife of his good friend henry it won't do for America to allow this marvelous child to retire from her studies because of poverty. If she can go on with them, she will make a fame that will endure in history for centuries. Along her special lines, she is the most extraordinary product of all the ages. So Rogers agreed to sponsor Keller, and she eventually graduated cum laude in the help, with the help of her constant companion and teacher, Annie Sullivan. Twain was equally awed by Sullivan, who he deemed a miracle worker, decades before the play and movie of the same name. Keller, he wrote, was born with a fine mind and a bright wit, and by help of Miss Sullivan, amazing gifts as a teacher. This mental endowment has been developed until the result is what we see today, a stone-deaf, dumb, and blind girl who was equipped with a wide and various and complete university education. Twain and Keller's friendship endured as Keller's star continued to rise. I think she now lives in the world that the rest of us know. Helen talks, Helen's talk sparkles. She is unusually quick and bright. The person who file, fires off smart felicities seldom has the luck to hit her in the dumb place. She is almost certain to send back as good as she gets. 
and almost certainly with an improvement added. Despite her growing fame, Keller pr proved herself a loving friend, consoling Twain after the death of his beloved wife, Olivia, in 1904. Do try to reach through grief and feel the pressure of her hand as I reach through darkness and feel the smile on my friend's lips and the light in their eyes, though mine are closed. A year later, her tone had shifted back to the gentle ribbing that marked their friendship. In honor of Twain's 70th birthday, Keller wrote, And you are 70 years old, or is the report exaggerated like that of your death? I remember when I saw you last at the house of dear Mr. Hutton in Princeton. You said, If a man is a pessimist before he is 48, he knows too much. If he is an optimist after he is 48, he knows too little. Now we know you are an optimist, and nobody would dare accuse one on the Seven Terrace Summit of knowing too little, so probably you are not 70 after all, but only 47. Twain was also not scared to tease Keller and talked about subjects other, others around her may have considered taboo. Blindless, blindness is an exciting business. If you don't believe it, get up some dark night on the wrong side of bed when your house is on fire. Try to find the door. That's so wrong. Keller's simple joy in life was constant. What makes you kind of wonder if you ever tried to do something like that. Get up on the wrong side of bed with his eyes closed in the middle of the night, try to find the... I mean, obviously, he's not setting his house on fire. Well, yeah, but, yeah, trying to... There's that guy. Hey, Bigelow, come in here and beat me with a stick while I try and find the door. <laughs> Keller's simple joy in life was a constant source of wonder for the increasingly world-weary Twain. Once yesterday evening, while she was sitting, musing in a heavily tufted chair, my secretary be began to play on the orchestrella, he wrote in 1907. Helen's face flushed and brightened on, on the instant, and the waves of delight and motion began to sweep across it. Her hands were resting on the thick, cushion-like upholstery of her chair, but they sprang into action at once, like a conductor's, and began to beat, to, and began to beat the time and follow the rhythm. A year before his death, Twain invited Keller to stay at Stormfield, his home in Reading, uh, Connecticut. Keller would long remember the... The tang in the air of cedar and pine, and the burning fireplace logs, orange tea, and toast with strawberry jam. The great man read short stories to her in the evening, and the two walked the property arm in arm. It was a joy being with him, holding his hand as he pointed out each lovely spot, and told some charming untruth about it. Yeah, so she knows, he, she pretty much knows that he's lying about whatever. He's, 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 he's like, ooh, there's yeah. a titmouse. Or so. <laughs> he's yeah, I he's, know you're full of shit, dude. He, but she loved, she loved every second of it. Uh, before she left, Keller wrote in Twain's guest book. I've been in Eden three days, and I saw a king. I knew he was a king the minute I touched him, though I had never touched a king before. But for all of Keller's elaborate words, her true love for Twain boiled down to one simple fact. He treated me like a competent human being. That's why I loved him. That's all that's all it takes is just treating somebody the way you'd want to be treated, treating them like a person. All handy capable people want to be treated like normal people. That's yeah. what they strive for. Yeah. Uh, as for Twain, his feelings for, for Keller were forever tinged with admiration and awe. I am filled with the wonder of her knowledge acquired because shout out from all distractions. If I could have been deaf, dumb, and blind, I also might have arrived at something. Uh, I got most of that uh, biography.com, again, from Hadley Mears. 
Hey guys, have you been trying to grow out that beard? I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at thebeardstruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now. Odin demands it. Another one of his good friends became so when they became neighbors in Hartford. The most famous woman in America, Harriet Beecher Stowe, the writer of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, in fact, Stowe's brother Thomas performed the ceremony at Twain's wedding. Her older brother helped Twain to negotiate publishing terms. Twain was interested in the reaction to Stowe's book and hoped that he could replicate the success with Innocence. Uh, Twain would later come to defend her during the Byron scandal. Stowe had published a scandalous expose on George Gordon, Lord Byron, alleging he had fell into the depths of a secret adulterous intrigue with a blood relation so neat and consanguity that discovery must have been utter ruin and expulsion from civilized society. Though Stowe technically refrained from naming Byron's half-sister as his partner in crime, she left no doubt about the identity of the lover relative. Um, Stephen Pappas, Kristen Masters at blog.bookstellyouwhy.com. Clemens, in addition to being a writer, was fascinated with technology and science. Given not only the sharpness and clarity of their minds, they also overlapped in interest. It seemed almost inevitable that he and Nikola Tesla would eventually cross paths with each other. Yeah, I, I didn't know this one, but apparently there's some very famous uh, photos out there with the two of them. Oh. According to the science blog, it's okay to be smart, which it is. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. Uh, Tesla had a bout of severe illness in the 1870s before his immigration to the U.S. His condition was serious enough that his doctors thought he might not survive. Since there was relatively little else he could do during that period of time, he read all the books he could from the local library. Among those books were several volumes of Twain's earliest work, which Tesla described as so captivating as to make me utterly forget my hopeless state. He went on to say that those books may have been the reason for his recovery. It would be about 25 years before the men met, but meet they did, and when Tesla told Twain about his illness and the role Twain's writings played in his recovery, Twain was moved to tears. Aww. Yeah. The Irish Times reports that the writer and the inventor became friends in 1890. Tesla was living in New York, and even though Twain and his family lived in Europe at the time, Twain was still a frequent traveler to New York. So, Twain became interested in Tesla and his work after hearing about an electric motor the scientist had invented while working for Westinghouse. Twain was fascinated with electricity. Tesla was looking for all sorts of new ways to use it, so it's hardly surprising that when Twain became a regular visit visitor to tes Tesla's labs, there are number of there are a number of photographs from that period that were taken of Twain in the lab, which I will find and we will post on our Twitters and Instagram. Open an effing book and at open underscore a underscore f dot ing underscore book. Uh, 
one of the most famous, if not infamous, stories about Twain's interactions with the device in Tesla's lab is this. Now, in part one, when we were talking about his father, you had mentioned that maybe he was just constipated, and that's why he was always so aggrieved. And I said, well, th that does come to play later on in Twain's life. This is where. Tesla had been working on a, a mechanical oscillating machine. It was like an engine that would put out an alternating current of high frequency. It also vibrated significantly. Tesla was curious about whether the vibrations might have some sort of beneficial therapeutic effect. And once, when Twain was visiting, he was asked if he could try the oscillator. Some sources suggest that Tesla knew Twain was prone to digestive issues and proposed the experiment as a way to cure his friend of his constipation. Did he make Mark Twain shit himself? Twain got on the oscillator and the machine was started up. <laughs> he reportedly enjoyed the effects, saying that it left him feeling invigorated and full of vitality. It gave him a boner! D no. Come oh. Why do you always go for boner? Because invigorated. <laughs> well, it just, it made him, it, the shaking made him feel, whatever it he made him feel. He got it, a boner. Okay. Despite Tesla's repeated suggestion, the author refused to get off the machine as he was enjoying the feeling. That is, until he had to make a mad dash for the bathroom. Apparently, Tesla's oscillating machine also works well <laughs> as a laxative. Ah, uh, he's so you, much as shit. You want to think that Mark Twain made it to the bathroom? <laughs> At least, mostly. Oh, he didn't. Because he's, wanna... he's wearing a white suit. You can't hide it. You want to... You, wanna... you don't want Mark Twain with, with fucking racing stripe down his back. <laughs> no, that's the Mark Twain you want. You, no, you want... don't want Mark Twain covered in shit. Yes, you no, do. No, you don't. What is wrong yes, with you? you? Do. I don't that's want what you want to shit. know from history. No, I want to know. Where was the shit in English? I, I in I... high school and college classes. You want to hear about famous authors shitting themselves. <laughs> I want to know about Mark Twain almost shitting himself. <laughs> no. I want to hear about Mark Twain getting massive diarrhea because he didn't <laughs> listen to Nikola Tesla. I guess that, okay, him not, okay. It would have been different if he'd, if Tesla had been like, probably time to get off, and Twain would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should get off. And then he goes to the bathroom. Then you don't want him to shit himself. But the fact that Tesla kept telling him, um, this is not a good idea. You're going to want to get off of that at some point. And Twain going, no, feels good. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden he shits himself. Okay. You... You converted me over to your side of thinking. See how that works? Uh, Twain would visit Tesla's lab for years. The men's lively minds made for a good company. They tried new experiments, uh, played some. At one time, Tesla shot an X-ray gun at Twain's head. They didn't realize that it gave you cancer if you did that. So uh, it's possible that Tesla inspired Twain's creation of Hank Morgan, the hapless visitor to the past in a Connecticut in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Uh, although there is little remaining correspondence between the two great men, it is known that Tesla was invited to Twain's daughter's wedding, which is a sure sign of the real esteem that existed between them and continued until Twain's death. Uh, I got that from Ian Harvey at the Vintage News. Hmm. 
But while those he made me shit myself, <laughs> come to my daughter's wedding. He didn't make him shit himself. He didn't listen. Well, yeah, but, but hey, while those years you're a friend now. You you saw me shit myself. <laughs> you come to my daughter's wedding. While those years were gilded with awards, success, and much joy, they also brought him much anguish, like we had already covered. Um, early in their marriage, he and Livy lost their toddler son, Langdon. Uh, his favorite daughter, Susie, died at the age of 24, spinal meningitis. This broke his heart. Adding to his grief, he was out of the country when it happened. Uh, his youngest daughter, Jean, was diagnosed with se- uh, severe epilepsy. For many years, Twain rela- Twain's relationship with his middle, da- middle daughter, Clara, was distant and full of quarrels. Um, again, you can go on Steamboat Times and read all about Clara. I think they, it seems like the people in a family who don't get along the most are the ones who are the most alike. And it seemed to me like Clara knew what she wanted, went after what she wanted. And that's one of the reasons her and... Twain didn't really see eye to eye in a lot of stuff because they were alike. It it could be that or the fact that he wanted his children to have a much better childhood than he had and she got kind of spoiled. So well, I guess go on Steamboat Times, read up about Clara. I the thought of doing another episode on just his family early on had crossed my mind, but I want it to be about the authors, not so much about the family. I'm going to get into the family a little bit so you know where they're coming from, but I want it to be mostly about the authors. Do yourself a favor. Go to the steamboattimes.com. Read all about him. Read all about his family, his friends, where he lived. You could spend hours on there just reading. And it, it is very interesting. Travel down that rabbit yeah. hole. Uh, June of 1904, when Twain was traveling, Olivia died after a long illness. Twain became somewhat bitter in his later years. Even while projecting an amiable persona to his public in private, he was demonstrating a stunning insensitivity to friends and loved ones. Much of the last decade of his life, he lived in hell. Twain wrote a fair amount, but was unable to finish most of his projects. His memory faltered. Twain suffered volcanic rages and nasty bouts of paranoia, and he experienced many periods of depressed indolence which he tried to assuage by smoking cigars, reading in bed, and playing endless hours of billiards and cards. Uh, That's from God's Fool by Hamlin Hill. September uh, 1908, his youngest daughter Jean's health had improved, and she had joined him as his secretary, and the two became very close in that time period, taking many countryside walks. So, uh, he, he, you know, Jean was sick, she was in and out of uh, sanitariums for years before this, but now she's feeling better. And right there at the end of his life, he's finally getting uh, to spend some good quality time with her. A little come, reprieve from uh, death. Uh, Clara, th- th- this was a good time because Gene was back in his life. Clara married Asip, uh, I'm going to destroy this name, Gabriel Switch, a Russian musician, uh, at Stormfield in 1909. Sam even wore his Oxford robes at the wedding. Uh, Later that year, Sam would publish Letters from Earth. Uh, It consists of a series of commentaries in essay and short story form. Many of these pieces express Twain's discomfort and disdain for Christianity, both as a theological position and a lifestyle. Uh, Join the fucking club, dude. 
the title mm-hmm. the title story consists of 11 red- letters written by the archangel Satan to the archangels Gabriel and Michael about his observation of the curious proceedings of earthly life and the nature of man's religious the nature of man's religion featuring a hymn that is an um, homage to constipation uh other other pieces in the book include a morality tale told as a bedtime discussion with twain's children susie and clara about a family of cats and an essay explaining why an anaconda is morally superior to man he was looking forward to a pleasant christmas but gene who remember had developed epilepsy at a young age had a seizure in the bathroom, which led to a heart attack on Christmas Eve and died suddenly. Sam was devastated. He grieved by writing The Death of Jean, expressing his accumulated grief over the loss of Jean, Livy, Susie, and his infant son. It was his last substantial piece of writing. He vowed never to write again, his health now declining with the spirit. Now that comes straight from uh, The Boy's Life of Mark Twain by Albert B. Payne, old Bigelow himself. Comets, in particular, interest him, interested him. And one day, he said, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year, and I expect I will go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment in my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. He looks More of that prophetic... Uh, that was it was yeah he looked so strong and full of color and vitality one could not believe that his words held prophecy yet the pains reoccurred with increasing frequency and severity his malady angina pectoris was making progress which is pretty much just heart trouble and how bravely he bore it all he never complained never bewailed i have seen the fierce attack crumple him when we were at billiards, but he would insist, insist on playing his turn, bowed with his face white and his hand digging at his breast. That's all from uh, Albert Payne because they spent five years at the end of his life together. That's very sad. In January of 1910, he went to Bermuda for his health. But sensing, sensing his weakening condition, he returned to Stormfield, where he sank into a coma on April 21st, 1910. That same night, his heart failed, and he died in his bed. Two days later, a large funeral procession, procession was held in New York City with service at the Presbyterian Brick Church. He was buried next to his wife and children at Woodlawn Cemetery in Elmira, New York. Haley's comet appeared in the April sky at the time of his death, just as it had appeared at the time of his birth in November 1835. His prediction had come true. Maybe he was a prophet. Yeah. Uh, Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut is now a popular attraction. It is designated a National Historic Landmark. I do encourage people to go see it. Uh, you can go to Hannibal and see uh, his boy town, uh, his, his boy time home. Um this isn't the end of his writings. He he had many stories and unfinished novels, some released, some not after his death, including many Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, Tom Sawyer stories. Um, way too many for me to get into. 
the private life of Adam and Eve being extracts from their diaries, my platonic sweetheart, the purloining of Prince Olio Margarine. I bet my platonic sweetheart is about Helen Keller. It's a good possibility because they had a wonderful yeah. platonic friendship. I yeah. mean, if if there's anybody out there who's trying to say that men and women can't be friends and it just be a friendship, you know, Mark Twain, Helen Keller. There you go. Look, look to a 70-year-old Mark Twain and a 14-year-old Helen Keller. They pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, the Curious Republic of Gondor and other whimsical sketches. Uh, the Washu Giant in San Francisco. Mark Twain's Fables of Man. Europe and elsewhere. A pen, a pen warmed up in hell. The Bible according to Mark Twain. And Letters from Hawaii. As a collection of letters Twain wrote during four months trip to the island. Twain is one of the most quoted and misquoted writers in history. And when I say misquoted, I don't mean like he said something and people misdrew I mean, people give him credit for a lot of quotes that he shouldn't be uh, given credit for. That's probably because that's the first author that pops in their minds. So. Well, and a lot of things that he's misquoted for are things that you can imagine him saying. Well, let me get to a few. Um, some of the things that he did say, um, if you tell the truth, you don't ever have to remember anything. Whenever you, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform or pause and reflect. Uh, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Classic. A book which people praise and don't read. Reader, suppose you were an idiot. And suppose you're a member of Congress. But I repeat myself. Yeah. God created war so that Americans would learn geography. Which is so true. Never allow someone to be your priority while allowing yourself to be their option. Which is actually something that my father had said to me when I was uh, younger, which really did strike, strike a chord. And uh, loyalty to country always. Loyalty to government when it deserves it. Uh, most of those are from Goodreads, uh, a few other places. If, if you have proof that he didn't say those, please let us know, and I'll be more than happy to... Uh, come on and, and say that I got it wrong. But here are some that people think he did say when he didn't. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. Uh, we don't know 100% for sure if he said this, but most people think it was Agatha Christie. It's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> this does sound like something he would say. Uh, there isn't any real proof that it was him. Um, some think it, it was uh, Lincoln or Franklin or even Galileo. Uh, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter, which uh, a lot of people don't understand that one. It's you, when you're writing a letter, you don't have a lot, a lot of time. You just kind of write everything that comes to mind real quick. But if you have more time to write it, you can edit it down and uh, just kind of get it to the point better. But um, this actually came from the French physicist, Blase Pascal. Never let schooling interfere with your education, which is poignant, but not from Twain. It was more than likely Grant Allen in 1907. 20, this one kind of baffles me just for the sheer amount of time between Twain and the actual person who said it. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do. Um, there's no evidence for him ever saying it. However, American author 
H. Jackson Brown attributed it to his mother in his book, P.S. I Love You, when Mom wrote She Always Saved the Best for Last in 1991. Yeah, there's a little bit of a a 90-year spread between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> Go to heaven for the climate and hell for the company, which I love that one. Um, and it certainly sounds like something he would say. But a lot of people think that maybe it was James uh, James M. M. Barry, creator of Peter Pan, because he used a sim- similar phrase in 1890. And most accounts show that politician Ben Wade said something similar in 1880. This one, because of all the hullabaloo about fake news and all this bullshit going around the internet, I've seen this one on Facebook more times than I can fucking count. I even called somebody out on it because they got it wrong because they said it was Churchill. I went on and said, no, that was Twain. And then I went back in, did my research, and and I took it out of the quoted section and put it to the misquoted section because I was wrong. Mark Twain didn't say this. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the, tr- while the truth is putting on its shoes. I've seen that a bunch of times, and people are attributing it to Winston Churchill. This came from Charles Spurgeon in 1859, long before Winston Churchill. And probably my favorite that I like to base my entire outlook on life around, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. Uh, some say this is actually Oscar Wilde, which would make sense. Others say it goes all the way back to the 14th century. Um, that's from Montana Rogers at NewEngland.com. Now, I, I know we're going pretty long on this one, um, and thank you all for, for listening. I just have one more thing to cover. At the very beginning of the series, I told you that Mark Twain was a lot of things. He wore many proverbial hats, and on top of everything, He was an inventor. He received three patents, one for a history trivia game that never got off the ground, which I would have loved, Uh, another for a self-pasting scrapbook that made him about $50,000 over the course of a few years. $50,000 in today's money, $1.4 million. How how, How many people of you, and Stephanie, this includes you, knew that he created the self-pasting scrapbook. I had no clue. If anybody today makes an invention that makes them $1.4 million, you hear about it. You yeah, and know it's usually it. on Shark Tank yeah. or some bullshit. Yeah. He did this back, and I had no idea. I knew he had invented some stuff. I didn't know that he made that much money off of it. And then one other was a garment fastener. Uh, It was a strap intended to be used for tightening shirts at the waist and was supposed to take the place of suspenders. Twain envisioned the invention as a removable band that could be used on multiple garments to make them fit more snugly. The patent explanation reads that the device could be used for vests, pantaloons, or other garments requiring straps. It's, It's actually a really good idea. The item never really caught on on the vest or pantaloons because vests have buckles and pantaloons had gone the way of the fucking horse and buggy. But the strap became a standard item for something else that we still use today. A belt? The brassiere. Oh, the bra. So, so one guy's 
when you're getting in the mood with your wife or girlfriend or the last woman left at the bar at closing time and you're just that desperate and she is too and you're struggling with getting that bra off because you don't get to take them off that much and you refuse help from her because you think it'll be sexier if you take it off yourself but now she's getting either frustrated because she just wants to get it over with already or even worse she starts to laugh at how incompetent you are you could sit back and thank the man of the hour mark twain when i can just undo it with two fingers yeah well, I'm not Joey Tribbiani. I can't be like, oh, you're doing it. It pops right off. Uh, so, I, again, I jumped all over the Internet for all this stuff, but I got most of my info from uh, SteamboatTimes.com. It's a very complete uh, source of everything Mark Twain. So go, if you're interested in Mark Twain, uh, find out as much as you want. Um, so that, that does it. That's Mark Twain from life to death and all of his writings and everything in between. So what would you think? I, I learned a lot about Twain. Yeah, I, so did I. Yeah. Way more than I ever thought I knew or would know. And way more than I ever thought I needed to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, I learned he shit his pants. <laughs> That's what I'm taking away from this. Mark Twain shit his pants Mark because Twain. Nikola Tesla. If you take, if, ladies and gentlemen, if you take anything away from the last three plus hours of your life listening to this, I want you to take away this. At one point, Nikola Tesla made Mark Twain shit his pants. <laughs> That's the best thing ever. <laughs> that made my fucking day. I, I saw by the smile on your face. <laughs> by, the fact, by the fact when I said he fu- suffered from constipation, and then I said that uh, he had a oscillating, mach- a oscillating machine, you immediately put your hands over your face, and your eyes got the size of ping pong balls. Because I immediately <laughs> thought, shit, and you, you go, well. And then I was like, wait, a boner? If it's not shit? And then you kept going, I was like, it's shit, it's shit. <laughs> He fucking shit himself. How confused is he at that time that he's, he's got a shit and he's got a boner at the same I mean, time? Like, guys get get boners on motorcycles all the time because of the oscillation. I've, I don't know. I've never actually been. I've been on like a four wheeler stuff. I've never been on a motorcycle. So but the know. vibration, it it feels good. I've and done a lot of vibrating things that that didn't do that. But well, you're at an age where you can control it now. You know, when you're young, she's you saying I'm. That's her way of saying I'm old. She's not denying it. <laughs> you're not old, but you know you're able to control your. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank everybody for listening. Like we said, we got a. We'll we'll have the show notes up on the website at audioparfait.com and the, audio parfait. You can go. Um, we have links there to uh, Instagram and Twitter. You can catch Stephanie's Twitter at at ecjabt. E-C-J-B-A-T, he see, fucked that up. I fucked that up, totally. I probably shouldn't even tell you mine, because I'll probably fuck His that up. His is at Young, E-T-A-A-M. That's Y-O-U-N-G-E-T-A-M. There you go. All right. And uh, send us an email at info at audioparfait.com. Uh, tell us if you know more about Mark Twain than we do, and I'm sure you probably do. Send us an email. Tell us how we fucked up. We'll be more than happy to come on here and, and, and tell you what we fucked up and, and how. Um, give us some recommendations on what you want to hear, how we can make the show better. Any authors, any books, Anything any of that. Like that. We're open to pretty much everything. Uh, we're new at this, so your support really helps. So wherever you get your podcast from, be it Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Spotify. Spotify. Any, pretty much anywhere you can get uh, podcasts. We are there. Click subscribe, rate us, review us. It really, really helps, guys. And share us with your friends. Yeah. Tell them to go open a fucking book. Yeah. So 
I got to get my dog outside because he looks like he's about to shit himself like Mark Twain. So <laughs> until we talk to you guys next time, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. Bye, guys. Bye.